Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by Brian Anderson, author of Universities on Fire, Higher Education and the Climate Crisis, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Dr. Anderson is a futurist and senior scholar at Georgetown University, exploring the impacts of technological, societal, and environmental change on higher education systems throughout the world. Brian Alexander, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for hosting me. Glad to talk with you. Yes, well, happy you are here. Um, So to begin, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, Maybe how you describe yourself and your work when you introduce yourself to folks both inside and outside of academia? Oh, sure. Uh, I'm a futurist. That means I specialize in helping people think more creatively, more strategically, and more effectively about the future. My specialty is the future of higher education. So I research, study, and forecast what's happening with colleges and universities. Uh, I work around the world. I've finally finished all continents except Antarctica. Uh, and along the way, that work takes many forms. It takes the form of uh, publishing research electronically or through scholarly books. I host a weekly video conference conversation about the future of higher education. I publish articles and book chapters. I give talks. I consult. I lead workshops. All that in the service of trying to improve our understanding of where post-secondary education might be headed. Uh, professionally, I'm also a senior scholar at Georgetown University where I teach some classes in their learning design and technology master's program. And I'm based out here just right outside of Washington, D.C. in northeastern Virginia. Thank you. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, about the, I, I assume you have labeled yourself a futurist and also been labeled a futurist. So I was going to ask, you know, what, what does it mean to be a futurist in the higher education context? So you've sort of started to answer that, but maybe you can uh, spend a little bit more time and, you know, what, what, what role uh, beyond the role, so like how do you envision sort of the future of uh, higher ed as a futurist? Oh, it's a, it's a big question with a lot of answers, so I'll try to be as concise as I can. Um, I try to study primarily the changes that are currently going on throughout the entire higher education ecosystem. I mean, that means the roughly 20,000 colleges and universities around the world, but along with all the contextual forces that are reshaping them, be it the actions of businesses and nonprofits that work in our space, like scholarly publishers, the actions of policymakers from government, you know, national governments to regional, provincial, local governments. I take a look at trends as well in technology, which I break down quite a bit in the different parts, macroeconomics, changes in demographics, and so on. And I try to understand, again, as much information as possible about all of these different forces and then synthesize that to project forward where these campuses might be headed. And I do this uh, often at the macro level, looking at the entire sector, but I also do this for individual chunks of the sector, you know, so a given nation or a given region or a type of institution. Uh, to do this work requires a continuous research agenda. Uh, so I often use social media to share out my research and also to sharpen it. You know, to share out questions I have or stories I find to ask people, you know, what do you think of this? Is this a legit story? Should we be concerned about X or Y? That kind of thing. Uh, and in order to do all this, I also rely on other people. People uh, share with me all kinds of stories and developments they find, anything from transitions in geopolitics to individual stories on their individual colleges or universities. So it's a, it's a real kind of group mind effort. 
and I just do a lot of energetic work in cat herding it and nudging it along. That sounds about right. I was going to ask a process question because to, to write a book like this, um, you would no doubt have uh, a, a very thorough process, right? If, if you were going to call yourself a futurist, if you were going to sort of imagine uh, various possibilities, which you do in this book, um, you would really need to do your homework uh, unless you uh, want to be called out the second you publish. So. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there are a lot of divides in the futures community. I mean, one of them is uh, the professional side. So to what, it, what constitutes being a professional futurist? Do you have to have a certificate or a degree from one of the uh, universities that teach uh, future studies? Do you work in the for-profit field or the non-profit field? And also how you present. Do you use the prediction word? Do you believe in multiple futures or one single future? Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of controversy in that. Um, I mean, I'm, I've been in that field for more than a decade now. I've been on the board of the Association of Professional Futurists and so on. And there's a lot of fascinating work being done and methods and, uh, and the kind of evidence we use. And there's a whole developed body of work about the different tools that we use, everything from trend analysis to horizon scanning to three horizons methods to scenario building. And the the kind of evidence we use, we try to sample as broadly as possible, uh, and that can that can take a great deal of work. But to go back to your second point about the uh, writing of the book, I mean, this did take a lot of back and forth research. They, I, I shared almost everything I found and almost everything I was uh, extrapolating with different audiences. So my supporters on Patreon, people on social media, you know, such as Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, but also with uh, other groups. Uh, so colleagues colleagues that I meet uh, at Georgetown, but also audiences for all over the world, uh, students in my classes, and just try and get feedback. You know, is this unreasonable? Is this suggestion unlikely? Um, and I could say more about how the book came to be written, but it's it's definitely not something that it's, it's a topic that you just can't write by yourself. It's a topic that really requires a social engagement and a lot of networking. Right. So, so the book is called, just, just so we note it at the beginning of this interview, uh, Universities on Fire, Higher Education in the Climate Crisis. Um, so I can imagine many reasons why you might want to write this particular book. Uh, but since you are here, let's ask you, why did you write this book? Sure. Well, my previous book, uh, also in Johns Hopkins, was called Academia Next. It came out late 2019, early 2020. And it looked at the next generation of American higher ed. So looking roughly 25, 30 years out, specifically in on the colleges and universities of this nation. And that's a very limiting point of view. It's very useful. American higher education is big. I mean, it's about 4,000 institutions. It's enormously influential. But I wanted to proceed in my next book to take a look at the global context and to do that very seriously. And I also want to look further out beyond 25 or 30 years. I wanted to look 75 years out, the end of the century. And as I began doing that work, which is enormous, I mean, that's a huge increase of an order of magnitude and complexity, I started realizing that the climate crisis was not really appearing within higher education discussions. And this was strange because not only is obviously the climate crisis an enormous, enormous thing. In fact, you know, the, psycho the philosophical term hyperobject may have been invented just to grapple with it in its sheer scope and complexity. But also in the futurist field, it, it's kind of an axiom now that you have to 
take into account climate change in any forecast you're doing for whatever field, if you're forecasting the future of the U.S. military, the future of a company, of a region, that climate change is just simply one of those forces we have to contend with. So looking at periodicals in higher education, looking at conference presentations, looking at programs, looking at scholarly books, just finding that climate change was not a major topic. And so I started diving into that. And the deeper I delved, the more complex the problem became, and also just the the more challenging. Uh, and this ultimately had to be a book because it's it's there is that much stuff going on. And in fact, already I've seen some of the reviews, people saying, yes, 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 this much is good, but you didn't say enough about X or Y. I'm like, yes, yes, that may have to be a second book or a second edition because there's just so much going on in this. Uh, I wrote this during the pandemic, uh, and ironically, I, I've gotten some entertaining reactions from my previous book, which came out before COVID, but uh, included a famous or notorious page where I asked people to imagine what would happen if a pandemic struck the world and how that would alter higher education. Uh, but I, I wrote Universities on Fire throughout the pandemic, and it uh, came out just this March. Right. I, I think you're right to point out that um, if you move beyond sort of political conversations or discourse or institutions um, dealing with or addressing or factoring in climate issues is just it's non-negotiable, right? It's, it's sort of part of the steady state. It's part of sort of the circle of concern, whether you politically align with that concern or not. Um, yes, so. yes. And I, I think in, in academia worldwide, I think the majority, I think a clear majority uh, would support that position and say that this is definitely something that's happening. Uh, we do have some deniers, but they're not very noisy uh, and there aren't that many of them. Uh, but actually taking steps either as academics or as people within institutions to address it in that institutional context, that's been pretty quiet. And so I, I hope with this book to make that quiet go give way to a loud, noisy discussion so that we can really be thinking about what does it mean to take colleges and universities forward the next 75 years in this context? How should we reshape our research mission, uh, our physical campuses, our community relations, our teaching and pedagogy? And that's the kind of discussion I hope this book provokes. Yeah, I, I think it will. <laughs> if, if it is read, right, you can never assume you have a readership, but uh, I think people will find this book personally. Um, so, so, okay. Uh, you, I think, assert, and from my experience in academia, I, I think it's a reasonable assertion um, that academics haven't necessarily focused on the climate crisis, whether it's in their research, their teaching, um, you know, other aspects of campus life. Um, so, so why do you think that is? And to paraphrase a question that you posed uh, in this book, uh, why should we discuss academia uh, at all when the climate crisis is just so much bigger, right, than, than higher ed, than these, you know, 30,000 post-secondary institutions globally? Yes, no, it's a very good question. And uh, I've heard this from, from some academics. And when I say academics, I, I mean the entire population. I mean faculty, staff, and students. Although... Traditionally, undergraduates are usually completely on board with this, and we can talk about that in a bit. But one of the one of the express, open and explicit reasons for not 
being involved in climate action has to do with the sense that academia is just not relevant or it's too small that uh, if if you are a scholar or an administrator or a student and you have a certain amount of energy to devote to this cause that it's just not very effective that you should instead divert your energies to something where some place where you could have a bigger impact such as persuading your national government to change a policy or working with a gigantic multinational corporation or a, a nonprofit of global stature and that's 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 not an unreasonable uh, challenge to raise. I do disagree, though, on a few points. I mean, one is that academia as a whole actually is a significant player in the world stage. I mean, we contribute enormous amounts of research to the uh, entire understanding of the climate crisis. Now, we can talk about the research agenda I'd like to um, in a little bit, but that's across all disciplines, uh, and that plays a very powerful role. We also educate a tremendous number of people, millions and millions of people who are go on to inhabit and hopefully modify this swiftly heating world. And along with that, we also have a population uh, that constitutes small towns or small cities around the world. Uh, campuses, you know, as small as a few hundred students to as big as 60,000 plus. And all of those are actually parts of the entire complex of civilization. And the there's, in, in a sense, this is an all hands on deck kind of crisis. This is an all of the above crisis. This isn't one where we have to uh, pick and choose uh, who's going to be involved. This, you know, if you talk to any of the scientists, any of the scholars, any of the activists looking at this, they say this has to be a civilization wide lift in order to decarbonize society and rebuild it and protect it for the ravages that we've uh, incurred. And so I think you know, academia should definitely play a role. Um, and that means everybody within academia, librarians, technologists, grants administrators, French professors, 18-year-old students. It's a really all of the above uh, kind of thing. And, and one, one more feature, and this is a bit of a controversial one, is I think we can influence the world beyond our education, beyond our research. We can, depending on where we are, influence our local communities, by example, you know, by setting up solar panels, for example, or forbidding fossil fuel cars on campus or changing our food service. And we can talk about these different measures later on. Uh, but I think that may be something that may help interest people, give an example to people. And we can do this also in the world stage, uh, where academics can play a role as public intellectuals trying to influence governments, nonprofits, companies, entire populations to change. So I, I, I to put it another way, there is a, a long-running discussion about what kind of historical precedents we should evoke in order to understand the climate crisis. Uh, some say we should think about World War One, World War II combined. Some say the Industrial Revolution. And it is that large in scale. And then you look back at how academics responded to these crises. And it's interesting because in the 1930s and 40s, colleges, universities were deeply involved in many ways in World War II. Everything from sending people as soldiers to supplying people as researchers and as workers in uh, war industry uh, to condemning enemies and you know, trying to help aid the fight. So if, if that is our kind of precedent, then that might be the kind of mobilization we need to bear in mind now. And it's not exactly a slow-moving thing happening uh, at, if you'll forgive the pun, a glacial 
uh, pace. Right now, global warming is already occurring. I mean, take a look, for example, at uh, Jakarta, the former capital of Indonesia. The Indonesian government moved the capital out of Jakarta because the city is at sea level and the country deemed that it was at risk. Now, uh, within a mile of the Pacific Ocean in Jakarta is a university. So should that university be thinking about moving or building a wall or otherwise firming itself up or going virtual? So I, I think we really have to grapple with this now. And if you look at the IPCC reports, they insist that this is the decisive decade that we've already blown by a generation where we could have done more and that humanity as a whole has to act now. The clock is ticking and we have to take steps. So uh, to, to build on... Uh... I think the example that you use, World War II, is maybe the historical reference point. I think for, for many of us, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and the response to it uh, is maybe the historical example that's both uh, the most recent and maybe the most appropriate. Uh, it, so, so I'm wondering, uh, you've already acknowledged that you wrote this book during the pandemic, so, so I'm wondering uh, how both the pandemic, its existence, but also the response as varied as it was both in this country and beyond our borders, um, how that influenced um, your thinking as you were writing this book, how it maybe influenced your research, because, you know, I, I don't get the sense that you're digging in a lot of, you know, physical archives and during a pandemic, you wouldn't have had that option anyways. So, so how did the COVID-19 pandemic and the response um, again, as varied as the responses were, influence how you thought through this book and how you wrote the book? Oh, it's a great question. Uh, so just thinking about this in terms of the uh, book composition process, uh, one downside um, was obviously suffering, death, enormous stress. Uh, I caught COVID um, a week after I turned in the latest version of the manuscript last October, and in fact, probably caught it from an IPCC event. Um the uh, another impact I think had to do with the fact that I couldn't do a lot of physical travel, and that matters not for archives in this case because so much of this is happening is really fresh research and it's digitally available. But the chance to visit sites uh, such as campuses, which are doing interesting things. Uh, last month, I visited Colorado College, which has been doing some very interesting things. They have an off-campus eco-village for students to live in. Uh, I think the acronym for the village is actually TREE. And the students live in sustainable housing, and then they work on various climate projects, including teaching K-12 through students about the climate crisis. Um, Dickinson College, in uh, in central Pennsylvania has, among other things, a, a nearby, near-to-campus farm, an organic farm where the students work. And they bring that produce into town where they have a shop where they sell both the produce as well as food that they make with it, you know, such as, you know, soups and stews and that kind of thing. So the, the chance to visit uh, sites like that, uh, the pandemic really did block out. Um in the fall, also, we had a, a huge strike at the University of Barcelona, where the students uh, struck successfully to convince the university to mandate classes on the climate crisis for all students, undergraduate as graduates as well. Uh, and I would love to have been able to go there and just and try out my terrible Spanish and, and try to learn from them. So the, the pandemic did block all of that. Uh, but again, so much, so much scholarship, uh, recent scholarship is either digitally native or quickly scanned. So that was accessible. But it also 
it, it gave me examples uh, and an instance of ways that humanity might respond. Uh, the late philosopher of science Bruno Latour had an interesting idea where he asked us to think about the pandemic as a kind of dry run for climate change. And he ultimately decided that he didn't like his own idea. But but along the way, it's very interesting. He says, you know, this is a, a very complex problem. It's one that uh, crosses national borders with ease. It's one which involves a great deal of science, uh, scientific knowledge. Uh, and it's also one which is to some degree non-human. Uh, you know, it's the... Uh, a virus, for example, literally an alien life form, alien to humanity, or the uh, sheer complexity of the disturbances to the Earth system in the case of climate change. And if that's the case, then there are some major downsides in terms of thinking about what we learned about how we might respond to the climate crisis. Um, Andreas Malm, the great Swedish activist and scholar, said that he feared that the pandemic pushed uh, climate change off the radar. That it was just such a huge uh, topic that drew so much attention necessarily uh, that it really put uh, climate action on the back burner. Uh, another issue to think about is that we saw very little in the way of international collaboration. That while we did have some, the WHO, for example, uh, working on issues, we also saw many public health responses devolve from the international down to the national, or in the case of the U.S., down from the national to the state and below that to the county and city level, um, which wasn't an effective way to respond to the pandemic in many ways and foretells that we're going to have a hard time trying to coordinate all of human civilization to respond to the climate crisis. There was yet a, there, there are a few bright spots though, which which I keep coming back to. One, you you probably remember this in the spring of 2020 when uh, we had the, the first great lockdown. We saw that we, among other things, were able to suspend industrial operation to a large extent. And you know, above cities like Mexico City and Los Angeles, you saw clear skies for the first time in decades, right? Um, we demonstrated for the first time that we could consciously reduce our carbon emissions. And that was an interesting insight. Um, that's a powerful one to bear with. And the second positive point is Despite all the horrific mistakes, screw-ups, and actual crimes in the way that we responded to COVID, we also responded with a great deal of creativity. I mean, the, the, the vaccines are a huge step forward in uh, pharmacology, enormous importance for uh, medical history and for public health. Uh, think within higher education, how we responded by doing something actually unprecedented, you know, flipping all of post-secondary education online in a hurry, in a few weeks or just a few days without any extra support. Uh, yeah, we made mistakes. There were some terrible pedagogical disasters, but we did this and we made it work. And that's a tremendous thing for an institution, which is often not too inaccurately derided as being hidebound, reactionary, slow to change. And we had other innovations that actually just keep going to this day. People changed their calendars. They changed the composition of which classes would be in what buildings or off campus. We experimented a great deal with online learning. A lot of people learned a lot in a hurry. I mean, think about how few people actually knew what Zoom was three years ago. And now, you know, people, it's just part of life. Uh, I, I think that innovation, which is actually so rich, it's hard to catalog. I think we can take that to heart and say that this is something that's, that's fun. And what, one more point. It, it's a great question you ask. Uh, at the same time, we in the United States initially, and then large parts of the world, 
took up the question of social justice alongside the pandemic. And so on the on the one hand, this was a notable thing, a very important thing, a very required thing to do, to look at racism in particular and anti-racism to figure out how to redress historical and present inequalities and inequities. But we also did that in concert with the pandemic. So that drew attention to how black people had worse health outcomes, less access to health care, had a clearly second class status in terms of public health. And so that changed a lot of behavior that changed how we diverted funds, how we allocated vaccines. And I think that points the way towards the actual practice of climate justice, of trying to grapple with a climate crisis without reproducing all those terrible inequities. So for all the screw-ups and warnings ahead, I think there's also some inspiration to be taken in our experience of COVID. Agreed. Uh, No experience that is that sort of uh, total, right? It's nobody could avoid, right? The, The pandemic. Uh, has simply negative outcomes or simply positive or even simply neutral outcomes, right? It's a whole mixture uh, with unintentional tales to them, right? Or un- unpredicted tales, right? You you simply don't know how, for example, you reference Zoom, right? How is video conferencing going to be used um, to connect families, to connect, you know, people who are interested in, you know, climate justice or students, you know, across various campuses, right? Like I work for a program um, called the Eco League that we've, we've discussed a little bit. And, and I technically work for six different colleges and I'm interfacing with students in four different time zones and faculty and administrators, you know, who in some cases I start my day and I'm almost, you know, I'm halfway through my day when my Alaska colleagues get online. Right. So it's just changing, as you said, uh, how we engage with technology, how we simply schedule our day, how we interface, right? Are we necessarily traveling um, and, you know, whatever, using our carbon budget for the day uh, to travel, to have a meeting that we could, you know, approximate in an online setting? Or like, are we going to prioritize human connection? And to do that, you're going to say, well, uh, we should really pick a location that's bikeable. It doesn't have to be on campus. It doesn't have to be in the office. It can be somewhere that's, you know, mutually agreeable, that's easier to get to and where we don't have to use, you know, I guess, like a carbon-based vehicle to get there. So I, th- I think you're right. This is going to go in so many different directions, and it really is hard to predict. That said, I realize you're a futurist, and part of your work is trying to predict <laughs> some of this to the degree that anyone can, right? Quite, quite. And I, I try and do this personally, man. You mentioned bicycling. Uh, I resumed biking about a year ago, um, and just, you know, I, I, like the like the cliche says, you know, I didn't forget how to bike, but then you know, teaching myself um, the the how to get around, you know, what 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 are the safest routes for getting around my town, um, you know, how to update the bike and and maintain it, how to use it to get groceries and that kind of thing. I, I also started two years ago. Oh gosh, two and a half years ago, I switched my diet over from a diet that was pretty rich in meat and animal products to one that's completely vegan. And in in part, both of these biking and veganism are practical for me. They're rewarding for me. They're good for my health and so on. Um, But also they're kind of futurist practice to think, okay, well, what happens if we push for more and more biking, uh, less car driving? 
which is almost heretical in the United States, right? But but what do we learn from that? And, uh, and what can I learn from the individual practice? The same with veganism. I mean, it's pretty much a consensus now in the climate community that the human race has to eat less meat and eat fewer animal products. Well, what does that look like in practice? So I've been, you know, studying all kinds of things, you know, multiple cuisines, of course, and making food, um, but also some of the nutritional aspects. I know far too much about different kinds of lentils right now, and I can make myself easily quite dull as a interlocutor um, but it's it's fascinating to to learn this as a as a personal practice you know to make a experiment of part of my life absolutely uh, it's not just sort of a, a global sort of issue it's you know on the day-to-day like how, how do you change or how does you know sort of how do these conditions sort of force change um, you know whether we like it or not um, so, so you referenced that there are roughly 30,000 post-secondary institutions globally, um, at least as of 2023, and these institutions enroll uh, approximately 220 million students and employ nearly 6 million faculty. Um, so, so I'm wondering, you know, with, with those, I think, pretty gigantic numbers when you, you know, you really think of higher ed as, as this I don't know if industry is the right, uh, but it's, I guess, this, this uh, global uh, institution, right? So, so in thinking about some of the component parts, so, so how do you suggest, say, a small liberal arts college um, or an underfunded regional university, like both of whom may be uh, not in the strongest financial health, like how do those entities respond to the climate crisis? And then sort of alternatively, uh, like, what role do you think like a flagship public university, say the University of Florida, uh, where I did graduate work, or a well-endowed private university, you know, say Harvard, say the University of Chicago, like what role do they play in addressing climate crisis, right? So, so these schools that are literally trying to find the funding to stay open, whether it's, you know, private funding, state funding, uh, federal funding, or these, these flagships, um, that really are not struggling with anything other than how to spend, um, you know, their R1 funding and really do great research. So, so what roles do they play? Like, what does that look like? That's a huge question. Um, and it's, it's a really, really good one. I'm very glad to hear uh, you identify the different contours of uh, our nation's ecosystem of higher education. And it's actually one of our glories that we have such an incredibly diverse set of institutions, everything from you know, military academies to community colleges, liberal arts colleges, which we invented, Research One universities, state universities, tribal colleges, HBCUs. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary range. Um, and it's, it's definitely one of our great achievements that would make it all work. Well, a, a few different answers to think about. Um, I mean, it depends on institutional type. Each one of them has a, a certain approach. Uh, so, for example, if you think about community colleges, these are more than any other sector of higher education, more sensitive to, more committed to local job markets. So they, among other things, have to track what kind of jobs are preparing students to work in. And that in turn, puts them in touch with the changes wrought by the climate crisis. So we can think about green jobs, 
And green jobs may be something uh, as direct as work, you know, preparing someone to be a solar panel installer and maintainer uh, or an electrician to be able to work on modifying the electrical grid to architects who are trying to plan uh, new kinds of buildings and new kinds of cities for urban designers and so on. But it could also involve uh, preparing people to advise companies, uh, you know, how to make this transition happen. What, what steps should they take? Um, that kind of you know, job engagement is so crucial, I think, to almost all of higher education. But community colleges really have that at their forefront. They also have the advantage of being very nimble in terms of their curriculum, where they are almost more than anybody else able to spin and change what they're teaching, what they're offering. If we contrast this with, a, uh, say, a liberal arts colleges, liberal arts colleges are also, also have the ability to be very nimble because they're usually very small, say, several hundred to a couple thousand students at the most. And so they have the ability to turn on a dime, which a large state university, for example, really doesn't have. Uh, but they also have an interesting commitment to interdisciplinarity. And this is, I, I should I should speak about this, that the climate crisis, trying to understand it in terms of research and teaching, doesn't belong to any one discipline. I mean, if you if you look at the research, and I, I have a, a, a pretty extensive chapter on this, uh, the research is conducted by some of the obvious scientific fields, you know, earth science, environmental studies, of course, you know, atmospherics, hydrology, chemistry, obviously all of this makes sense. Um, but we also see this occurring now across the social sciences, where you see fields like uh, economics, trying to understand what kind of financial instruments will back up our ability to try to bring all of civilization on board? Or uh, one economist won the economics Nobel for his model of discounting of how we discount future generations, our decision-making process. You look at political science, and there's already quite a bit of research looking at what happens to models of state sovereignty or international collaboration as we try and grapple with this. Turn to psychology, and psychologists have already been working on the mental impact. Uh, what happens to to the developmental process of a given human mind as they live through the climate crisis. I mean, you have terms like solastalgia, you know, which refer to the pain of basically losing a world that you grew up with that you can't return to, even if you're physically in the same spot. Uh, you know, you take a look at sociology. I mean, again, field after field. And in the humanities, you know, where I came from, my own PhDs in literature, you're seeing more humanists take a look at this. For example, in a philosophy, trying to think of the ethics of, of climate action, which is a pretty hairy subject. In history, trying to incorporate more work about environmental uh, impacts on, on history, uh, literature, communication, journalism, art, trying to figure out how do you communicate, how do you tell stories of the climate crisis, which is a huge challenge because it's an enormously, as we said before, complex and challenging subject. How do you translate that into photography, into speech, into short stories? And literature, they're taking a look at the emerging field of climate fiction. Uh, which is novels, but also films, TV, computer games that try to imagine the future of Earth you know, under the impact of the climate crisis. How do these stories get told? What can we learn from them? So in, in short, all of, of research can be involved across all the different departments and all the different fields, which leads to some interesting challenges. How do you support that kind of interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary work? Do you need a climate center on campus? That's one way to do it. How do you support a faculty member who wants to you know, acquire more knowledge about the climate crisis in their field and so on? Uh, so the liberal arts college model 
is really well suited to this because they are so committed to interdisciplinary work. So you may see more and more of that. Um, if you look at a research university, there the the great power that I mentioned before that higher education has of contributing uh, research in, in every form, again, in all kinds of fields, but also in scholarly monographs and scholarly articles and presentations, digital artifacts. Um, you know, the Research One University can really own up to that uh, and really power with that. Uh, if you take a look at state universities, they have a very different mission because they're committed to serving their population um, and in, in a different way that, you know, private universities are not so much. Um, and they also have to have a lot of access to their population. So they have to think very hard about how the climate crisis impacts their given state. You mentioned Florida. I mean, Florida is in some ways an outlier. It's the state most at risk of uh, sea level rise. Um, it's, you know, when you look at all the projections we have for what happens if sea level rises one foot, two feet, three feet, Florida goes. I mean, it, you know, it goes right across the neck. Um, and al already we've seen this with uh, some of the, the state has written off some of the Florida Keys to rising. So, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a public, if you're in the University of Florida system, <laughs> Being Florida, you already have all kinds of political problems right now. We can come back to that if you like. But you have to think about what this means. Do you, for example, think about closing down at some point in the future? Do you think about relocating? Um, do you think about building up a defensive measure such as a seawall or elevation so that you bulk up your, your foundation so that you can literally ride out storm surges and floods? Uh, or do you go virtual? Uh, you know, all the state institutions have to think about this. Uh, and then, you know, you take a look at the difference between public and private universities. In the U.S. setting, this you know, a public university is one that is, in theory, uh, nominally state-funded, although since the 1980s, we know that level of funding has dropped across the board. Um, and public universities are, to some degree, beholden to their state government. And the degree that we that connection works depends on each individual state and politics, and that changes rapidly. Um, private universities have their own options uh, where they can where they go and how they direct. They have their own stakeholders to respond to. So I, I think each individual sector is going to have its in individual take. Um, but across all of that, you start off by talking about the funding. You know, how can a, a financially strapped institution make this happen? I think we can talk about this in a few ways. One is that, I hinted at this earlier, traditional age undergraduates, so 18 to 22 years old or so, they constitute roughly 60, 65% of the undergraduate population. We know from polling that that population is far more interested in climate change than their elders. I mean, it's a very, very stark difference. And so it may be that it's a simple investment bet for institution to roll out more classes on climate change, again, across the curriculum, you know, classes in the sciences, social sciences, humanities, because there will be demand for it. So on a financial basis, that might be a sound move, but also on a kind of ethical basis, as well as in the kind of the mentality that to some degree colleges and universities are there to respond to their students' needs in some way. Um, we can also think that we should expect different degrees, and this will change, of course, that we should expect external support, uh, financial support from granting agencies, from foundations, from governments, uh, in partnerships with businesses to help this work. I mean, you, you think about the nations that are making big 
national steps. They're taking big national steps on this field. You know, think about the United States with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Um, that's a lot of money sloshing around, which higher education can partake of in different ways. And that spills over and you start to see foundations and grant agencies start to offer more and more support for that kind of thing. So I think we'll see that. Down the road, say 20 or 30 years out, we should start to see more alumni demands for this kind of work. And it may happen sooner, I hope so. Uh, but just thinking about when today's 22-year-old, uh, a generation from now is, is thinking about retirement or looking longingly at their alma mater, they may say, yeah, I'd like to donate, if, especially I'd like to donate to your new climate center. Uh, so we may see that as well. You mentioned the elite institutions, the handful that have endowments worth speaking of, like you know the Harvards or the Stanfords. And they have, I would say, some interesting challenges and opportunities. Um, one opportunity they have is to use their status, you know, that enormous position in the academic hierarchy, their public um, uh, capacity, as well as their wealth, uh, to really take enormous strides forward. So that may take the form of collaborating with localities uh, about construction projects. So, for example, in New York, to have Columbia University work with the Seawall, protecting Manhattan and the Bronx. Or do you see them investing in major centers or even spin-off colleges on this subject? But also you see on-campus struggles over this. Uh, we've seen a long-running struggle with Harvard to divest its uh, its uh, endowment from fossil fuel and uh, sources. And it hasn't fully done this yet. They're still resisting that. Uh, also at Harvard, we saw a very interesting fight from a law professor, uh, a law professor who has contributed mightily to uh, legal issues around climate, uh, well known in that field. But she also now sits on the board of ConocoPhillips, the same comp oil company, which is now about to start digging and drilling in Alaska. Uh, for the Willow Project. So we've seen Harvard faculty and Harvard students protest this and call her actions out as hypocritical, if not participating in greenwashing. So I, I think the wealthy institutions are going to see that kind of thing happen, and they should really grapple with it seriously because of their position. And that position may influence others. People in, in, in higher education, we are creatures of hierarchy. We do like to follow our peers and especially to follow leaders. So we could really respond well to how places like you know, Stanford or um, Middlebury College really act. So you are starting to anticipate my next question <laughs> by mentioning Middlebury and Stanford and whatnot. Um, so which colleges, universities, university systems do you think are actively engaged in productive uh, manners <laughs> to address the climate crisis? Um, what steps are they taking? Uh, what are they doing well? And what do you think could uh, be emulated uh, by some of their peer institutions? Well, I've mentioned a couple so far, and uh, I, I should expand upon them a little bit more. Um, Colorado College uh, has a whole set of efforts that was started around the previous president, and their current president, uh, Song Richardson, has been energetically pushing these forward. Uh, and that includes, for example, a lot of faculty partnerships with students in research on climate change. Uh, Dickinson College, which I mentioned before, has an interesting sustainability requirement. It's built into the curriculum where every student needs to take a climate class in order to graduate. I mentioned their farm, and uh, they also do quite a bit of research. And these are a couple just to point to right now uh, that are doing some work. Uh, I think at Pacific Union College, which I, I write about in the book, which uh, has this interesting problem. They're in California in a spot that's very, very prone to fires. And climate change makes those fires more frequent and larger and 
more terrifying. So they've gone through an enormous amount of work to protect themselves from this. So they are literally a university on fire, uh, to take the title of my book. For example, they, they have created a, a fire break around their campus. You know, they clear cut down to the ground a zone to try to reduce the chances of fire leaping from the surrounding forest onto campus. They have their own helicopter, which can let, you know, buzz over and drop uh, retardant on, on fires. They've cross-trained some of their faculty and staff with local EMS and with fire departments in order to respond. They have a uh, academic program uh, on conservation, uh, which they get to practice very, very closely. And recently, they mentioned debrush the local uh, uh, forest uh, in, in a truly extensive way in order, again, to reduce the chances and the sizes of fires from happening. Um, I, I, across Europe are a whole series of universities which have master's degree programs aimed at some degree of climate. So they can be climate and law, climate and policy, climate management, and of course, climate science. So we're starting to see this really occur. China offers an interesting case as well because it's an authoritarian um, nation uh, and the you know, things tend to flow downward across the hierarchy. So when the nation decides to take steps on climate, among other things, higher education has to respond. Uh, so we're already seeing a lot of directives about this coming from Xi uh, and universities having to comply. So I, I think, you know, we're, uh, Walter Leal has all, has edited a couple of great books looking at collections of, of articles on different campuses around the world and some of their responses. And again, each of them can be fascinating. Uh, several different African campuses have done great research into the campus carbon footprint and also into the local uh, ecosystem. Uh, another Spanish university, I think University of Madrid, did a great project of massively expanding the biking allowed on campus. So creating bike paths, uh, buying bikes for students to borrow, more bike shelters, that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I think we're seeing a transition start to assemble itself in leading institutions uh, around the world. No one has become the great climate campus. I think everyone's groping at what that might be. But the ones that I just mentioned, to name a few, are the ones that are really starting to take steps. Agreed. You certainly uh, referenced a few schools that uh, that I would highlight as well. So. <laughs> And uh, since I am a Dickinson College employee, uh, technically, although I work for the Eco League and all these other colleges, uh, I would also rep Dickinson. But Prescott College, Alaska Pacific University, uh, New College of Florida, which has built a seawall. You know, New College is in the news for other reasons, but they've built a, a seawall um, around the edge of their campus, which is right on, I believe, the Sarasota Bay. And that that has prevented, you know, uh, some of the worst kind of storm damage. Like they still have to deal with hurricanes um, and storm swells, you know. Uh, but uh, that is a significant step that they took as a college, a public college, um, that has also uh, had benefits for uh, some of their neighbors uh, who are not higher ed institutions. You know, the airport is right next door in their neighbor, and I suspect they benefit from <laughs> from having a seawall there as well. So, well, it's it's interesting. I mean, see, and I'm I'm glad you recognize the other reasons why new colleges in the news. Uh, I mean, seawalls are are very very interesting to think about. I mean, on the positive side, 
obviously they can do this work of warding off flooding. Um, They can also be a great place for student research and student practice, service learning. You know, imagine a student who's majoring in civil engineering, the chance to work on building a wall and everything from, you know, putting hands in concrete, right, to designing it and maintaining it. I mean, that's a great opportunity. Faculty can do this as well, where they can contribute their skills and their expertise. A downside, though, is that uh, walls have to end at some point. And so there have been some interesting studies which show that, you know, if you get a major water surge, smacks into a wall, stops, but the water is still there and the water splits in half going, you know, one side and the other side. And then that washes the length of the wall. And then once the wall stops, the surge that remains may then flood the areas around it. Uh, so that requires some really careful community coordination in order to make that work. The other problem, of course, is that the walls might not be enough. They may, they may be sufficient for the next 10 years, but not after that. And one of the examples that I, I, I find very interesting is the U.S. Naval Academy, which appropriately is on the water. You know, you'd expect that. Um, but they just built started building a wall because their library is slightly below sea level and likely to be flooded, which is, you know, one of the most horrific things you could imagine. Um, so it may be that uh, along with a quad, that a seawall becomes one of the cliches of what a modern American campus looks like. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't think folks at New College would say that the seawall is uh, sufficient and the only step to take. Uh, but I, I believe it was designed by a New College alum and New College faculty and students have done uh, the kind of research I think you're suggesting. Uh, so I would highlight Heidi Harley, um, who works with dolphins and I know has her students out there on that seawall and in the bay, just learning about the natural environment around the campus so that students are prepared on a many levels when, say, a hurricane like last year uh, finds its way to campus. So. And, and, this, and this is just going to keep increasing. I mean, the, the, this is, we, we could turn this and put it another way. If, if a campus does not want to be active in mitigating or adapting to the climate crisis, uh, if a campus leadership resists this, and there are all kinds of reasons, and I've heard this from presidents, trustees, and deans, um, the crisis still happens. It's still going to keep ratcheting up, and its its form will vary from place to place, and also depending on what humans do, and of course having to do with the complexity of the Earth system. Uh, but thinking about having storm surges if you're near water, thinking about having increasing desertification or aridification if you're near drylands or deserts, you know, and there's a good chunk of those around the world, especially Central Asia, Northern Africa, the Western United States. Even if you don't want to take steps to address it, the crisis is still going to happen. And so you're going to have to plan for how to respond to it. If you live in a, a, a lovely mountain and you're not afraid of sea level rise, well, that's an excellent position to be in. Most campuses aren't at mountains, but uh, if you're, for example, um, in around the Great Lakes of the United States uh, and Canada, you're in a good position to have access to fresh water. Bravo. So you may consider yourself to be uh, insulated and safe. And yet, and yet, um, the human factor begins to play a role because you think about the activism that your students may may partake of. I mean, think that Greta Thunberg is about 20 years old. Think that the Just Stop Oil activists who were splattering works of art with uh, food last year, uh, some of them were college students. How many of your college students are going to be tranquil to see 
you know, gas guzzling trucks on campus or to see uh, steak being served in uh, plentiful portions or to see that they have a petroleum engineering faculty member on campus and so on. Um, I mean, this is they may revolt. We have 1960s levels of uh, student activism. Uh, Think about faculty and staff who will want to actually conduct this kind of work. Uh, And on top of this, there's a kind of secondary level of impact which can afflict even the most comfortable campus, which is, you know, we have the immediate disasters, the immediate pressure of of the changes to the natural world, storms, fires, and so on. But then they also cause spreading effects. So, for example, uh, diseases. Uh, As we heat the world, we start changing where different microbes and organisms can live. We've already seen this in the northeast of the United States, where Lyme disease has moved. Uh, Lyme started off in Connecticut, named after the town of Lyme. Um, and because of global warming, the deer tick, which carries the thing, has moved around. So we've seen Lyme spread all over the Northeast now. Uh, so we have to be prepared for other pandemics, other diseases to move. Plus, uh, the agriculture around uh, your institution, that may change as well. Agriculture is famously sensitive to temperature fluctuations. So the trees, the plants, the animals that live on them, if they change, the literal look and feel of your campus will change. Uh, but also that can have impacts on everything from uh, local, the health of the local agriculture sector to small businesses to tourism. And on top of all of that, we have the human factor. Uh, we have the fact that companies, nonprofits, governments, people acting as citizens, as residents, and as consumers will all make decisions, and those decisions will have impact. So, you know, you think about um, a local car dealership or a local car industry which decides to dig in its heels and not pursue electrification. Well, say they collapse in six years when electrification becomes, you know, the dominant mode of automotive technology. That causes a small recession through your town. Think what happens if your state government mandates that you must have certain uh, amount of electricity generation on site, or if your provincial government mandates the opposite, where you can no longer install any new solar cells or any new wind turbines. All of these matters can affect even the most uh, comfortable and uh, unafflicted campus. So I, I, I th- that's a that's a passive and reactive way of working the climate crisis. I think higher education has an enormous capacity for being much more proactive, for looking ahead and taking anticipatory action. That's what I'd advise people to do instead. So as often happens, uh, our hour has flown by. <laughs> um, so though I, I wish this wasn't the final question, I think in the interest of time and uh, listenership, uh, <laughs> this will be it. Um, so, so say a first-year college student picks up this book, or a college president. You know, what what reaction would you hope uh, that these pretty different um, stakeholders within higher education would have to this book? Like, what action would you hope they would take? Well, that's the subject of the last chapter of the book, in many ways, where I I, I really cram in a lot of different steps, a lot of different actions that people can take. Um, I hope they commit themselves and their institutions to taking more climate actions. And that that occurs across the wide range of functions and uh, operations that we have in higher education. Uh, A brand new first year student might decide to study this more closely. Uh, So 
they have a whole number of directions which they can take. And then this becomes something for their advisor to help them with. Uh, this also may be the role that some of their mentors have, individual faculty play. Uh, so they may decide to become a civil engineer. They may decide to become an electrical engineer. They may decide to become a biologist and so on. Um, so that kind of study really, really counts. But then they can also be active. And the activity may be entirely online. I mean, that, you know, online activism is obviously a big thing, and uh, these students may feel that's very comfortable. They may take actions off campus. You know, I mentioned Just Stop Oil, or you can think of Extinction Rebellion and so on. Or they may take actions on campus. They may, uh, you know, protest and require certain things for the campus to do. Uh, you know, something that's small or even kind of antiquated, like actually doing recycling or really basic food steps, like having composting, uh, maybe changing the curriculum, offering new programs or new forms of housing, changing buildings on campus. Uh, a president, I think, has to imagine that student and more of those students and try to figure out ways to allocate resources in part to fulfill the mission of the campus, you know, that mission of creating knowledge, of stewarding that knowledge, of making it accessible through teaching. They have to be able to continue that function even as these threats gather and build. And then to really contribute to the way civilization responds, and that may be encouraging faculty to expand their research and teaching into it. It may be helping organize fundraising and support, going out to wealthy donors, you know, if they're a public institution, going to their government, looking for funding. Um, it may involve changing all kinds of practices. The, the, the third rail right now I found for academic discussion of, of climate is uh, travel. You know, if a president may decide to try to push faculty and staff to travel less, uh, which is very, very challenging. It's very difficult, and there are all kinds of details attached to this. Uh, it may be that uh, they try to reduce the amount of stuff that they physically mail and switch to electronic resources, or the opposite. They may decide that uh, the carbon footprint of their digital infrastructure is too great and they want to cut it back. Perhaps they will forbid Bitcoin mining on campus or restrict the amount of large data set crunching like we see in large language models for AI. It may be that they decide that their local athletic team has to play more locally. Uh, and make less uh, make less travel. They may decide to take their ag program and help nudge it to become uh, push it more towards plant based uh, ecosystems, and so on. I mean, the the physical campus itself. You know, thinking about every building to make it from carbon positive to make it carbon neutral or carbon negative. Do they decide to acquire and install direct air capture technology? Do they grow a lot more in the way of forests? Do they cover their parking lots with solar panels? If they've got wind or they've got water on campus to install wind power or hydropower, and above all, this is speaking as in terms of a single institution. I think we have such great capacities for networking and for collaboration across institutional boundaries. I would love to see Research Ones partner with local community colleges and to have that combination partner with their local social movements to try to share resources, to try and share ideas, to try and think and act together so that we can really meet this in a lowercase d democratic way. I mean, if you look at that, that huge swath of of humanity that higher education represents, this, this chunk, the stratum of civilization. We have such capacity. We have so much intellectual horsepower. And we have such a unique mission uh, of care for humanity. I, I think this is a critical time for us to mobilize 
in this crisis and to really, really take steps. I, mean, I end the book by saying that I, I, I fear that the, the metaphorical fire of climate change is already advancing. And it's up to us to treat that as or experience that as a disaster of destruction. Or do we see that as the lights of illumination? I hope we choose the latter. Well, I think that's as good an answer as any to uh, end this podcast with. So, uh, Brian Alexander, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you so much, Brady. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for the great questions and for your patience. Agreed. Thank you. And uh, this concludes another episode of the New Books Network.